Father, you are almighty, all-seeing and all-powerful. Thank you for giving us your word to teach and instruct us. And by your spirit, help us grasp the reality you teach us in this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start by asking, what's your view of humanity? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? We've recently moved from our studio apartment into a two-bedroom apartment. Luxury. We had to cull a lot of furniture a year ago, but now we've had the opposite problem. We've had to collect a lot. And so my wife, Abby, she's been constantly on Facebook Marketplace looking for good deals. So let me tell you two stories. Are humans good or not? Let's hear two stories. So Abby's dad... He has driven to our house with his trailer. He's brought our fridge that they've been storing. Good guy. But suddenly, Abby looks up from her phone. Ben, Dad, how would you like, how would you feel about driving to Waverton, to North Sydney? A lady's put up a free couch, and I've said that we can pick it up today with our trailer. And by we, she means Ben and Dad. (laughs) A bit presumptuous, but it's a good deal. So we drive to the lower north shore and we find this lady who's giving away a koala couch. It's a good brand for free because it has some slight pilling in it. In her words, I couldn't possibly sell it with a defect. We thank the Lord for her strong conscience. (laughs) Humans are good, aren't they? Second story, second story. We're in Sutherland Shire visiting my family and I've tried my hand at Facebook Marketplace and I've organised to pick up a new TV. I've been given an address, 101 Bondi Road, Bondi. We have the cash. We drive out 50 minutes to get there. I'm excited to upgrade our 32-inch TV to something I can actually see. Five minutes out, we get the message. Please send a deposit so I can hold the TV for you. Abby gives me the, oh, no, look. But we're five minutes out. I continue driving. It'll be right. We get there. No response. We go to 101 Bondi Road, Bondi. It's a personal training business. It's an attempted scam. It's deceitful. And so I write a very disgruntled message. I report him to Facebook and I leave all future Facebook marketplace deals to Abby. (laughs) Are people good? Or not? We all have different experiences, don't we? Different people have hurt us, have deceived us, and other people have been good to us. Our opinions, they may vary. What we need is God's view of humanity. And as we come to Psalm 53, God's answer is this. Humans are corrupt. Humans are corrupt. Now, David, the author, he first sees evidence of this corruption in the fool. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. The Bible teaches that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Here in this psalm, it is folly to deny God's existence. Now, this may seem like a strong accusation to our friends with atheistic beliefs, but Christians, we believe that the Bible is inspired. That is, God speaks through his word. And so here, God is basically saying, if you don't believe I'm real, 
you're a fool, which is pretty reasonable for anyone to say. But I actually don't think this verse is solely about atheists. Did you notice where this fool is speaking? It's not from his mouth, it's in his heart. This is a picture of someone, of a person who functionally denies God exists. This is a person who lives out their life without reference to God, who makes decisions based on their own preferences rather than what God wants them to do. This is a person who prioritises retirement savings over gospel generosity. The person who prioritises a child's education over their spiritual formation. This person prioritises career advancement over loving and serving their family and church family. This is a person who sits week in, week out at church and yet continues to live in sin. Friends, it's actually easy to be a functional atheist. So heed God's warning. A life lived in ignorance of God is folly. Don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. The fool's ways are corrupt and vile. There is no one who does good. As we jump in our psalm again, the perspective shifts. From viewing this fool, we're now brought up to the heights of heaven. And through it we get God's vantage point on all humanity. God searches for any who have wisdom and discernment to seek him, to seek God. But his search comes back empty. Every single person has turned away. And they, like the fools, have become corrupt. So the fools, they live in ignorance of God. All of humanity does not seek God. The picture is bleak. Humans are corrupt. But it's King David writing this psalm, right? Surely he can't be speaking about absolutely everyone. Surely he's, in, he's not really including himself and God's people Israel, is he? Well, interestingly, don't turn there now, but this psalm has a close twin in Psalm 14. Afterwards you can, you can turn there, almost word for word the same. The only difference is verse 5. Psalm 14, it declares God as present in the company of the righteous. Our psalm today, Psalm 53, God scatters the bones of his enemies. So presumably, as David is writing here in Psalm 53, he probably has in mind the rest of the world. The enemies, the foreigners, those who have fought, deceived and actively worked against Israel, God's people. And it's probably why this is compiled next to Psalm 52, which we heard last week. This psalm condemns the archetype of deception, Doeg the Edomite. And additionally, these foreign nations, they did not seek God because they couldn't. Listen to what Moses says about Israel's privilege in Deuteronomy 4. Moses says, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Or again, what other nation is so great so as to have such righteous decrees and laws as a body of laws I am setting out before you today? Israel was special. 
They were chosen. God listens to their prayers because they are his covenant people. God has given them the immense privilege of his scriptures through which they hear the voice of the Lord speaking. These foreign nations, they are the ones who don't do good. They are corrupt and evil and vile, surely not precious chosen Israel. Well, the Apostle Paul, he expands on the reality of this human corruption in his letter to the Romans. And he deals with pretty much this question, is it just the nations who are corrupt or does it include Israel too? He starts broad, Romans 1.20, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, that is, his eternal power and his divine nature, they have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. All humans everywhere have evidence for God. I mean, as you look at this building that we're in today, we see evidence for the architects, for the builders, for the aircon installers, for which we are very thankful. How much more when we look around at the world around us? How much more? All nations, all peoples have evidence for God. And yet they suppress this truth. And, they, and so they live in corrupt and vile ways. Paul then continues to speak of Israel. Israel who have the special revelation of God in the scriptures... And yet, as privileged as Israel is, they do not escape the reality that humans are corrupt. The law, in fact, shows them how corrupt they truly are. Romans 3, 9 to 12, this is where he quotes our psalm. Paul says, what shall we conclude then? Do we, that is Jews, Israel, do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul He uses our psalm to show us that all humans are corrupt. Jews, Gentiles, all people are stuck under the power of sin. All humans are corrupt. Have you thought about this reality? Every single person in this room is corrupt, is tainted by sin. No person escapes this reality. There's an evangelist in the US called Ray Comfort. He uses this as an approach to evangelism. He basically goes up to people and asks them, do you think that you're good? And to which they say, generally, yeah, I'm pretty good. And so he says, have you, have you kept the Ten Commandments? And so they rack their brain looking at what they remember. I, yeah, I haven't committed murder. I haven't committed adultery. I don't really lie. I must be pretty good. Ray Comfort, he then shows them that if they have lusted after someone, if they have hated someone, if they have envied, they have failed. It's often a wake-up call. I've seen the videos of people who are a a bit shaken up. They were living in the delusion that they were good and now they're confronted by their sin. I think we all struggle with this delusion. 
we're all tempted to believe that we're better than we actually are. And that's why the nature of our sin has been a hotly debated topic over many years throughout the ages. And so this psalm, it speaks into three of those debates. Original sin, total depravity and election. They're big topics, but I'll touch them briefly. Firstly, original sin. Some people have argued that we are not born sinful. Rather, that we imitate Adam and Eve, who were born good and then fell into sin. And that is, generally, that babies are born good and then over time fall into corruption and sin. This view was particularly stressed by a 4th century theologian called Pelagius. It's where you get Pelagianism. It seems nice. We all like to think of babies as beautifully innocent, unless you're a parent. But it's not biblical. Our psalm, it does not discriminate between young and old. No one is good. All have inherited Adam's sinful nature. David is clearer in Psalm 51. He says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Original sin has affected all of us, even babies. Humans are corrupt. Secondly, total depravity. This doctrine is very misunderstood. So let me say total depravity does not mean that humans are totally depraved in every sense that they are as evil as they possibly could be. That is not what it's saying. God has restrained our sin. He's given us consciences. He's given us the law. He's given us governments. What the doctrine of total depravity is saying is this. Every part of who we are is tainted by sin. Every part of who we are is tainted by sin. That is, we're sinful to the very core of our being. Some people have, tried, have the notion of trying to do enough good to outweigh the bad. Our psalm tells us that no one does good, not one. All our actions, even the ones that seem most admirable, they are tainted by sin. The Bible says that our thinking is twisted, our desires are deceitful, and our relationships, they're strained. Humans are corrupt. We are tainted to the very core. The third doctrine is strongly linked to that doctrine of total depravity. It's a doctrine of unconditional election. It's been the hardest for me and many others to accept, but our psalm, it shows us that It shows us God's search for anyone who seeks him and that search comes back empty. There is none. No one even seeks God. All have turned away. This again has been a hotly debated topic throughout the years, throughout the centuries. A 16th century theologian, Jacobus Arminius, through which we get Arminianism, um, he was a major opponent, enemy of this doctrine. His view argues that we are incredibly sinful, And we do need a saviour, but we are capable of seeking out God. That is, we're not completely corrupt, we still have the ability to choose God. There's the often used analogy of someone drowning in the sea. They're helpless on their own, they're flailing about, and then someone throws them a life buoy. And so they see it and they reach out and grab hold of it. God does the saving, he threw out the life buoy, but you need to grab it. 
Friends, that's not the biblical picture. We're not flailing about. We're dead in the water. Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. To suggest that we contribute anything to our salvation is to rob God of his glory. The only thing we contribute is our sin. You and I, we're deeply, deeply corrupt and we cannot do anything to earn eternal life. Jesus, he addresses that question in Luke 18. We won't go there today. Take a note, read it later. But it's summarised in this brief interaction he has with his disciples. They see a teacher of the law turn and walk away from God's kingdom. And the disciples, they look at Jesus in despair and they ask, who then can be saved? Jesus responds, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Salvation is impossible for you and for me. We cannot choose God. We need God to act. David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has taught us the depths of our sin. No one does good. No one seeks God. Humans are corrupt. And so how does God deal with us in our corrupt condition? Well, firstly, firstly, we need to see that God brings terrifying judgment. God brings terrifying judgment. Look at verse 4 to 5. Will the evildoers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread and who do not call on God. There they were, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Friends, you are sadly mistaken if you, can, if you think you can continue in your corruption without any consequences. God's enemies will be overwhelmed with dread. I've been reading through 1 Samuel in my quiet time. In chapter 7, God's enemies, the Philistines, they come up to attack Israel. And the Lord thundered and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before Israel. Or again, a bit later in 2 Kings, which we'll go through later in the year, the world's superpower, Assyria, is encamped at Israel's doorstep. But God, he sends his angel in the night, 180,000 of their soldiers dead. King Sennacherib wakes up in the morning and flees in terror. Fear, panic, the reality is clear. God brings terrifying judgment. God's judgment is final. It's brutal. It's lethal. The bones of his enemies are scattered. We've seen our condition. Humans are corrupt. By nature, we are all God's enemies and we are facing this terrifying judgment. I don't like talking about this. But you and I, we need to know the danger that we're in. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
God brings terrifying judgment. But God also brings joy-inducing salvation. God brings joy-inducing salvation. Look at verse 6. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. King David looked forward in hope, longing to see the salvation that God would bring. And as he looked forward, he anticipated that it would be a day of great rejoicing. At each of the battles I mentioned earlier, the Philistines, the Assyrians, as they were defeated, how do you think Israel responded? They rejoiced in their salvation. But the greatest enemy is no human army. Since the fall, the greatest enemy has always been sin and death. All humans are corrupt, and we cannot stand before our holy, sovereign God. But salvation has come from Zion. God has descended from his holy hill to become a man. And the man, Jesus Christ, was the only human exception to this psalm. All his ways were good. And so God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died to take the terrifying judgment in our place and to offer instead his perfect righteousness. And this is how the Apostle Paul continues his argument from Romans 3 that we read earlier. Romans 3.21, he says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets, they testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and between Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. What is impossible for man is possible for God. God has justified, he has redeemed, he has saved all who put their faith in Jesus. How incredible is our God? How incredible. Friends, I began by asking if you were an optimist or a pessimist about humans. Psalm 53 has painted a pretty bleak picture. Humans are corrupt. We are tainted by sin to our very core. By nature, we stand before our maker guilty and condemned. And yet God delights to save us. He chooses to work through his word and by his spirit, revealing our true nature and convicting us of our sin. And so perhaps today God has actually opened your eyes to see the reality that you're in, to see your desperate need and giving you a desire to put your faith in Jesus. The next step for you is to pray to God, to confess your sins and to put your trust in Jesus And Craig will help us do that after the sermon. For those of you who already trust in Jesus, can I finish by suggesting four brief implications for you? Four brief implications. Firstly, 
God saved sinners. Don't despair over your sin. God saved sinners. Don't despair over your sin. Humans are corrupt. Even Christians. Let your sorrow over your sin drive you to repentance and faith. Don't let it drive you to despair. God has saved sinners like you and like me. Secondly, be prayerful. Be prayerful. Humans are corrupt. They cannot save themselves. Only God can. So our response should be to pray. To pray for our neighbours, for our friends, for our extended family. Be prayerful. Thirdly, ministry is God's work. All humans are corrupt and have flaws. And this includes your Bible study leaders, your student ministers, your pastors, and any future MTSs. Your imperfections do not rule you out from serving God in ministry. God uses weak people like you and like me to partner in his work because ultimately, as we've seen, God is the one who saves people and that takes pressure off. Fourthly and finally, rejoice in your salvation. We were dead. Now we are alive in Christ. How marvellous is that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so great. You are perfectly good and we do not measure up. Our sin runs to our very core of our being and yet you have stooped down to save us. You have demonstrated your love in Jesus and so we cannot help but rejoice. Please, move in our hearts to see how great Christ is and how great is the salvation that you have paid for sinful people like us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.